Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Our engine blew, that's going to cost me $2,000. I got to get another set of tires in my car. It's going to be $1,000. Man, the, the water heater blew up in my house. That's going to be several hundred dollars. My air conditioning. You know what? I believe that when we're faithful to the Lord, there's a lot of things that just seem to last a whole lot longer. Just a whole lot longer. You look at the children of Israel, even, even in the, the disobedience, you know, as they wandered through the wilderness, the word says that their sandals didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. How did that happen? God did that. I believe that God is faithful to that. When we are faithful to Him, He remains faithful to His Word. Today, Pastor David provides the example of the Israelites walking through the desert for 40 years. The Bible says their clothes and shoes never wore out for 40 years. So maybe your dishwasher broke this morning, or maybe your car wouldn't start on your way to work. Whatever it may happen to be, But Pastor David will share with you that when you are faithful to the Lord, God will provide. Things last longer. Gas goes farther. That paycheck goes farther. All when you believe that God will provide. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Malachi chapter 1 as he continues his message, Having the Last Word. And yet the ministry that was praying for her, encouraging her, blessing her, supporting her, was this one. You think that that to me that just mentally, logically doesn't make sense. And I think biblically, the Lord says you, your main support should go to the ministry that is ministering to you. Enough on that. When he comes here, he says, "Look, if if you do this right, test me." He says, test me. This is one of the few places that we see the Lord saying, test me. He says, test me and see if you're faithful in your giving. Test me and see if I will not literally open up the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing. There won't be room enough to receive it. And one of the other ends of that is, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. Man, my, my car engine blew. That's going to cost me $2,000. I got to get another set of tires in my car. It's going to be $1,000. Man, the, the water heater blew up in my house. That's going to be several hundred dollars. My air conditioning. You know what? I believe that when we're faithful to the Lord, there's a lot of things that just seem to last a whole lot longer. Just a whole lot longer. You look at the children of Israel, even, even in the, the disobedience, you know, as they wandered through the wilderness... The word says that their sandals didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out. How did that happen? God did that. And I believe that God is faithful to that. When we are faithful to him, he remains faithful to his word. He says, and all nations will call you blessed. You'll be a delightful land. How in the world do you make it on so little? Man, God provides for me in such amazing ways. 
how in the world are you able to do this or that? You know, God is just blessed because we've been faithful to God in our lives. He's shown himself faithful in our lives. The final charge found in chapter 3, verse 13. God declares that they, they, they had spoken harshly against him, saying, it just doesn't matter if you serve God or not. The wicked continue to prosper. Look what he says, verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Oh, I'll tell you what you spoke against. Can you imagine asking God, what did we do? Uh, I'll tell you what you did. It's useless. This is what you said. It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and still go free. See, this is kind of the same argument they had earlier. It's all too easy for any of us to slip into our own self-pity party. Uh, we, we look around the world, we, we wonder why we don't have the new car, why we don't have the new house, why we don't have the fat checkbook, the nice retirement plan. We begin to collect, you know, question the justice of God. Why are we going through so many sicknesses and ailments and, and disasters within our family? Why is this all happening to us? And yet the evil, the wicked ones, man, they continue to go on. Man, that's the story uh, again of, of, of Asaph in the book of Psalms, Psalm 72, I believe it is, where he says, man, I, I looked around, I thought, man, all the wicked were, were, were doing great and, and it was only the righteous that were suffering. It just didn't make any sense to me, not until I came into the house of the Lord. In other words, not until he really came back and began seeking the Lord. And then his eyes were opened because their end is coming upon them quickly, comes quickly. We begin to question the justice of God for a moment rather than focusing on eternity. We forget that these things, these these worldly pleasures last only for a moment and yet eternity lasts, yeah, like for eternity. Rather than having heaven on our minds, we, we become way too focused on the temporary. We become way too focused on, on what's going on here. Rather than being led and empowered by, by the very spirit of God, we allow our flesh to direct us and, and our weakness to be in charge of our lives. Rather than the strength of the spirit being the one that directs us, we allow the weakness of our flesh to direct us. Now we sit in here right now and we think, man, that is so stupid. And yet we walk out these doors And way too many times we end up doing that very thing. But God reminds them. He is taking an account. He does see and he will judge. Coming up is one of my favorite verses in in Malachi. Uh, Again, it helps me to, to remember that, man, we just need to be speaking of his name. We need to meditate on his goodness every chance we get. Look what he says in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord... They spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and he heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. God listens to our conversation, and he's blessed when we encourage each other in the Lord. As a matter of fact, you know, he's writing it down. Oh man, there's there's Dale again. He's talking about the he's talking about me, man. He's giving praise and honor to me. 
Oh, there's Jim again, man. He's writing. There's Sue. He's writing out this book, and he's got our names in that book. Oh, we know about the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, when we come to trust Christ, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But I believe that this this book of remembrance, man, that's... I, I want to make sure that, man, my name's jotted down there many times. Is God literally, it's kind of like God is journaling every day. He said, oh, so-and-so, man, is talking about me. Oh, so-and-so cried out to me. So-and-so's been meditating. Man, he's been praying. Oh, how great that is. And then in verse 17, he says, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them, oh, this is so cool, make them my jewels. And I'll spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between righteousness or righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. In other words, once again, you'll begin to have a biblical world view. When we meditate on the Lord, when we speak of the Lord, when our lives are his, we start moving into a biblical world view with an eternal perspective. And that helps us to be able to deal with the events that happen all around us in the world. Malachi closes out the book with some words of power, some words of promise. Yeah, still some words of judgment, words of blessing. Judgment on the wicked, blessing on the faithful. Chapter four, once again, for behold, the day is coming burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. The day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. It's interesting, once again, we we see this coming judgment, and it's not like the other judgment that God did on the world. Remember, that was a flood. This time, it's going to be a burning very much like what we read in the New Testament, man. The, the earth will, will be destroyed. Uh, new heavens and a new earth. Total devastation. He says he's not going to leave them either root nor branch. But to those that truly love the Lord, both love him both, both in word and in deed, their, their lives, truly from the very core of who they are, they love him with a pure heart, uh, this continued devotion. For them, there's going to be blessings. Look what he says in verse 2. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You guys with the dairy, you know how nice those calves get pretty quick. The NIV, I love this, how they put it. And you shall go out and leap like calves released from the stall. You've probably seen that once or twice too. Man, just the excitement, man, just the freedom. And that's what God is saying. Verse three, you shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You're wondering how come God's not taking care of the wicked? He's gonna take care of the wicked in that day when that judgment comes. And then he gives a promise of that, uh, once again, this coming of Elijah. Verse four, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb on all, for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And again, he's speaking prophetically of John the Baptist. Be- I'll send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. After Israel heard 
and received the words of the Lord that came through Malachi the prophet, they repented and a great revival came across the land. The sinfulness of the priests was purged. The people's worship became real and heartfelt. Not. None of it. It did not change. As a matter of fact, for the next 400 years, there was silence from heaven. So God says, I've set this thing in motion. You're not doing anything, but the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. 400 years of silence. 400 years of opportunity to get their lives right before him. 400 years of of, of being able to repent and be reconciled to God. But yet for 400 years, no other prophet was raised up. And the attitude of the people of Israel continued on just as it was before. Now some, some, the, the remnant was always there. Some loved the Lord. Some feared the Lord. Some continued to meditate on the Lord. But by and large, the vast majority of them, they lived out their lives without a fear of the Lord. And 400 years of silence. I don't know if we have time to read all of this, but Ray Stedman, back in 1966, he put together a little article called uh, the 400 years between the Old and New Testaments. I've, I've edited it down as much as I can to help it make sense. Let me kind of go through it, and I'll probably edit it even as I read. At the close of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel back again into the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, but they were still under a Medo-Persian empire. In other words, they were not a free people. There was no king on the throne of Israel. They were the puppet nation under the domination of Persia. In Jerusalem, the temple had been restored, although it was a much smaller building than the one that Solomon had built. In about 435 BC, when the prophet Malachi ended his book here, his writing here, the center of world uh, world power had shifted from the east to the west. Up to this time, Babylon had been the major power, but it's now succeeded by the Medo-Persian Empire to the to a little to the west of where the Babylonians were. At the height of the Persian power, there arose in the country of Macedonia, which is now known as Greece, a man by the name of Philip of Macedon who became a leader in his own country. He united the islands of Greece. He became their ruler. His son was destined to become one of the great rulers of all, the time, of all time. His name was Alexander the Great. In about 330 BC, about 100 years after Malachi, a tremendous battle between the Persians and the Greeks took place that altered the course of history. In that battle, Alexander... Uh, as a young man of only 20 years of age. He led the armies of Greece into a victory over the Persians and completely demolished the power of Persia. The center of world power then shifted further west on into Greece and the Grecian Empire was born. Seven years later, Alexander died in 323 BC when he was about 33 years old. He had drunk himself to death in the prime of his life because there was no other worlds to conquer. 
After his death, the four generals that led Alexander's army, they divided his empire between them. Two of them in particular we, we, we think of here. One is Ptolemy who gained Egypt and the northern African countries. The other was Seleucus who gained Syria uh, to the north of Israel. For the next 100 years, Israel was caught in this battle between Egypt and Syria, uh, and and Israel was right in the middle of it all. During this time, the Grecian influence was becoming stronger in Israel. A party arose among the Jews called the Hellenists. These were very eager to bring the Grecian culture and the thought of the Grecian mindset into the nation and to liberalize some from the Jewish laws. This forced to split into two major parties. There were those who were strong Hebrew nationalists who wanted to preserve everything according to the Mosaic order. They resisted all of the foreign influence that were coming in to disrupt, disrupt the old Jewish ways. That party became known as the Pharisees, and their very name means to separate. They insisted on preserving all the traditions. They grew stronger and stronger, becoming more legalistic and rigid in their requirements. They became religious hypocrites, keeping the outward form of the law, but completely violating its spirit. On the other hand were the Hellenists, the Greek lovers, and they became more and more influential in the politics of the land. They formed the party that was known in New Testament days as the Sadducees. They were the liberals of the day. They turned away from the strict interpretation of the law. They become the rationalists of the day. They ceased to believe in the supernatural in any way. That's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. During this time in Egypt, under the reign of one of, uh, of one of the Ptolemies in about 284 BC, the Hebrew scriptures were translated by a group of 70 different scholars, a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, given the name of the Septuagint, which means the 70, the number of translators that took to translate it. This became the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. A little later on, in 203 BC, a king named Antiochus the Great came into power in Syria, to the north there of Israel. He captured Jerusalem from the Egyptians at that time and began the reign of Syrian power over Israel. He had two sons, one of whom succeeded him and reigned only a few years. When he died, then his brother, Antiochus Epiphanes took the throne. He became one of the most vicious and violent persecutors that the Jews had ever known. In fact, he's often called the Antichrist of the Old Testament. In his first act, Epiphanes overthrew the God-authorized line of priests. Then under his reign, the city of Jerusalem and all of the religious rites of the Jews began to deteriorate as they came fully under the power of this Syrian king. In 171 BC, Antiochus then went down and invaded Egypt. While Antiochus was in Egypt, it was reported that he had been killed in battle and Jerusalem rejoiced. When the report reached Antiochus, who was very much alive in Egypt, by the way, 
when, when, when the report came that Jerusalem was rejoicing that he died, he organized his armies and he swept like fury back across the land, falling upon Jerusalem with his terrible vengeance. It's then when he overturned the city and regained his power. Some 40,000 people were slain in three days of fighting during that time. Antiochus came into the very holy of holies of the temple itself. He destroyed the scrolls of the law. And then to the absolute horror of the Jews, he took a pig and offered it as a sacrifice on the sacred altar. If you know anything about the Jews, you know how horrible that would have been. And then he made a broth out of the flesh of that pig, and he sprinkled that on everything in the temple, thus completely defiling and violating the sanctuary. Now, under the leadership of a man now famous in Jewish history, fellow by the name of Judas Maccabeus, the temple was finally cleansed. Uh, He was one of the priestly line who with his father and four brothers, they rose up in a revolt against the Syrian king in a series of battles in which they were always an overwhelming minority. They finally overthrew the power of the Syrian kings, captured Jerusalem, and cleansed the temple. The Maccabees, who were of the Asmonean family, began a line of high priests known as the Asmonean dynasty. Their sons, for about the next three or four generations, ruled as priests in Jerusalem, all the time having to defend themselves against these constant assaults of the Syrian army who tried to recapture the city and the temple. During this time, one of the Asmonean priests made a league with Rome, the rising power further to the west. He signed a treaty with the Senate of Rome, providing for help in the event of a Syrian attack. Well, as the battles between the two opposing forces continued to go hotter and hotter, Rome just sat back and watched. Finally, the governor of Edomia, a man by the name of Antipater, a descendant of Esau, made a pact with two other neighboring kings, came down and attacked Jerusalem to try to overthrow the authority of the high priest. This battle raged so fiercely that finally Pompey, the Roman general, who happened to have an army in Damascus at the time, he came down to intervene. Pompey entered the city of Jerusalem again with a terrible slaughter. He overthrew the city and he captured it for Rome. That was 63 BC. From that time on, Israel was under the authority and the power of Rome. Pompey and the Roman Senate appointed Antipater as a procurator of Judea, and he in turn made his two sons kings of Galilee and Judea. The son who became king of Judea is known to us as Herod the Great. Meanwhile, these pagan empires around continued to deteriorate and disintegrate. Their religions had fallen upon evil times. The people were sick of all the polytheism, the emptiness of all these pagan faiths. The Jews had gone through times of pressure and had failed in their efforts to reestablish themselves, and they had given up all hope. There was this growing air of expectancy that the only hope they had left was the coming at last of the promised Messiah. And in the East... The Oriental empires had come to the place where the wisdom and the knowledge of the past had disintegrated. They were looking for something. When the moment came that the Magi, the wisdom men of the Eastern Empire, saw a star rising over the area of Israel, they began to search for an answer to their problems. They came out to seek the one that the ancient books had pointed to. And those books had come to them through Daniel, who had been exiled into Babylon. Thus, some 400 years 
after Malachi, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. What a cool thing. 400 years of silence, but God was so busy during that time. Again, moving all the pieces of the chessboard until, boom, he comes out to make his play. Here is my son in whom I am well pleased. He sent forth his son, born of a virgin, born for the salvation of all mankind. Noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for His Son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in His Word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying. And thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.